Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. As we continue our Advent series, thinking about the arrival of the Messiah here at Southside. We believe in God's Word. We believe it's inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and effective, which is one of the reasons we are pushing for the year 2019 a church-wide reading plan. It's called F, like for foundations, F260, and there's lots of ways you can get access to this thing. You can get one, we've got physical copies here at the entrances, PDFs, if you want to have a hard copy, stick in your Bible, that's one way. For many of you, probably the easiest way is going to have it on your phone, and you can do that a few ways. Number one, there's an app. We're going to put this in an email, we're going to put this on social media. If you've got an iPhone, there's an app for that. If you've got an Android, there's an app for that. Probably, if you've got the Bible on your phone, you probably have the YouVersion app. It's just a little Bible. It says Holy Bible. It's the most popular Bible app. It's really good. If you search Bible in the store, that's probably the first one that's going to pop up. And if you go under Plans and search F260, you'll find it. So starting January 1, I want to encourage all of you to jump in on this plan. You're going to get behind. That's okay. Just skip ahead. But here's the beauty about this plan. It is merely... Two chapters a day, five days a week. So you miss a day, that's okay. You miss two days, that's okay. It's five days, two chapters. If you read two chapters, the average reader, it takes like seven minutes to read two chapters a day. You all have the time to do this. This is one of the reasons I like it. It's so easy to do. You're not going to read through the whole Bible in a year, and that's okay. It's going to hit some high points. So I want to strongly encourage you to consider it. They've also got a hard copy. So if you want a hard copy, you can buy this from Amazon or Lifeway. It's called Foundations. If you put F260, you could probably find it. And so it's got it there. It's got uh, some notes, some helps to journal if you want to do that. It also suggests two scriptures a week to memorize. And I just can't even begin to think what the Lord could do in our church if we were all engaging his word in a meaningful way together. So let me just strongly urge you. You will grow, I promise you, if you jump in on this. So F260, lots of ways to find it. Again, we'll put it on social media. We'll put it on uh, email. We'll make it as easy as you can. If you've got any questions, email, call the office. We want you to be a part. Foundations 260. All right, Luke 1. We've looked at the prophecy of the birth of the messenger and the Messiah. We've looked at Mary's Magnificat. And this morning we see the birth of the messenger. Here we have the fulfillment of what we saw in chapter 1 and 11 following of Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. And we're going to see that this messenger is kind of strange. Some of us don't know what to do with John the Baptist, but he is pivotal to God's plan and to God's fulfillment of his Old Testament promises. With his arrival, with his advent, we have the dawning of the new age, the dawning of the era of fulfillment, the dawning of the new covenant. In this passage is chock full, just like really all that we've seen, with Old Testament allusions and echoes and quotations. One of the hardest things I've had to do in my sermon prep time these last few weeks is knowing what not to say about the Old Testament, because the New Testament really is the tip of the iceberg. I love this picture. The New Testament is just the tip, but underneath and foundational is all of the Old Testament. And so what we're going to see here is the story of this messenger and the story of the Messiah is really the continuation and climax of the Old Testament story. The Bible's filled with stories, but it's really one story, as we're going to see. These folks knew and loved their Bible. We're going to see that about Zechariah. 
He had embodied the vision of Psalm 1 and Joshua 1, and he had meditated on God's word day and night. It's in his bloodstream, and so when he praises God, it just flows out. So let's look then first at the birth of the messenger. We see this in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So now the time came. For Elizabeth to give birth, just like God said. Brothers and sisters, God can be trusted. His word can be trusted because what he says is true. If God said it, you can take it to the bank. And so Elizabeth gives birth, just like Gabriel told her, and her neighbors come and rejoice with her. In chapter 1, verse 25, she had mentioned her barrenness being a reproach among her people. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. The promise was you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And so reproach has turned to rejoicing because of the mercy of God. And they do as the law commands. They circumcise him on the eighth day. Circumcision, of course, was part of the covenant with Abraham as part of the old covenant. It's really what set God's people apart in the old covenant as they were circumcised on the eighth day. And normally he'd be named after the father or maybe the grandfather, but not in this case. Elizabeth says his name would be John, and they begin to push back a little bit, make signs to Zechariah, who had been both mute and deaf for nine months. Some of you ladies wish your husband would be mute and deaf for nine months. They probably didn't have a single tiff. But John writes down, his name is John. She's right. Listen to her. Yohanan, God has been gracious. This is no ordinary child. Look at verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who had heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. So Zechariah now, he can speak and praise spews forth. His muteness had been a sanctified affliction, and the hand of the Lord was with him. So now let's look then at the, the ministry of the messenger. You have the birth, now we have the ministry in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Here we have this well-known passage of Scripture known as, we looked at the Magnificat before, this is known as the Benedictus, based on the first word in the Latin Vulgate, blessed. And it really continues Mary's theme of the fact that God has been faithful to fulfill and advance his saving purposes. This first section here, verses 68 to 75, really focus on the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And then verses 76 to 79 focus on John's role in the purpose of God, which again is in fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Look again at verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Because he has visited and redeemed his people. In fulfillment of Joel 2, Joel 2 had promised that the Holy Spirit would be poured on all flesh and sons and daughters would prophesy. And here we have Zechariah prophesying and praising God because God has visited and redeemed his people. Many were the promises in the Old Testament that God would visit his people. Remember the song of Hannah we looked at last week that Mary alluded to. After the song, we read that the Lord visited Hannah, visited her, and her prayers were answered. And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Or the book of Exodus, chapter 4, God visited his people to free them, to redeem them from Egypt. And then later when God's people were in exile, God promised to visit them yet again in the prophet Jeremiah. This visitation is grace. God has visited his sinful and unworthy people and redeemed us. He's visited and redeemed. He has freed us. He has bought us back through his son. So the response is that Zechariah praises him. He blesses God. That was the response of Mary as well, right? My soul magnifies the Lord, as we just sang here. Blessed be the God of Israel. God is worthy of praise for who he is, what he has done, and what is he is doing. And so he begins just praising him. Blessed be the God of Israel. Verse 69. He's redeemed his people and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. He's raised up a horn. A horn was used to symbolize power. You deer hunters get that, right? 
Psalm 18 says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The idea is God has sent a powerful savior, a mighty savior. God has raised up his saving power. He tells us here in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the holy prophets of old, one of the main messages of the prophets is when will this David come back? The son of David. There are so many. One of the main messages, and these promises started back in 2 Samuel. I want to read what we now know as the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David, the promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We read this in 7, chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Huge promises. I want you all to know 2 Samuel 7 because in many ways you can't understand the rest of the Bible without them. In many ways, the rest of the storyline of the scripture is when will God keep his promises to David? When will this son of David who will rule and reign forever come? And I'm tempted here to read like 25 passages to show you the weights of these promises in the Old Testament, but I'm going to limit myself to just five. Psalm 89, a messianic song, says this, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. God will keep his promise to David. Psalm 132, another psalm about this coming Messiah, this coming King, this coming Christos, Christ. Psalm 132, 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. In the prophet Amos chapter 9, in that day I will raise up the booth. In the future I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. I'll repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Acts chapter 15 and Romans chapter 9 tell us the fulfillment of this prophecy is through the expansion of Jesus and his people. Ezekiel 34 is one of my favorites. Verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd. My servant David. By the way, all these prophecies are long after. The historical David's been dead. Yet he says, I will set up over them my servant David, a new David, a son of David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Or one more, Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness 
in the land. This word for branch actually is the word we're going to see a little bit later in Zechariah's song. It's the word for sunrise or day spring in verse 78. So these promises to David are vitally important, which I've already shown you again. This is why they're so important to Luke. If you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 27, we read that Joseph was of the house of David. Hugely important detail. If you look down at verse 32, God will give to him the throne of his father David. If you look at chapter 2, verse 4, we'll see next week. Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David because he was of the house and lineage of David. Or in chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. God made promises to David. Christmas is about God keeping his promises to David. He's bringing in the kingdom of his son. And in fact, this little verse, in many ways, is a good encapsulation of the whole Bible. God has brought salvation. He's up a, raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. God has brought salvation for us through David, just as he said through the prophets. In many ways, that's the story of the whole Bible. In fact, I just was reading Romans in my 2018 reading plan and was struck by the first few verses of Romans, how he's basically saying the same thing. Listen to these verses. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. God makes promises. God keeps promise. He is saving us through his servant, the son of David. That's not all, though. Look at verse 72. Luke 1, 72, to show the mercy promise, not only David, to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So not only is God fulfilling his promises to David, 2 Samuel 7, God is also fulfilling the promises he made to the fathers. God is faithful to his covenant. In fact, there's this little word. We've already read it a couple of times. It's in, in Hebrew, it's hesed. And it's this idea of faithfulness to the covenant. It's translated in Luke 1, mercy. We've seen mercy four or five times. God is faithful to his covenant. The Psalms, that word is translated his steadfast love. His steadfast love endures forever. God is faithful to his promises. Advent is about covenant keeping. And celebrating our covenant-keeping God. And here Zechariah mentions the oath he swore to our father Abraham. This is Genesis 12. I hope you're familiar with it. God promises Abraham that he'll bless him with land and offspring and blessing. And through Abraham's family, all the world would be blessed. The nations would be blessed through the family of Abraham. Let me read to you Genesis 22, verse 17. God says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God made a promise. God will keep it. Advent is about promise keeping. 
This is one of the things that drives God for all that he does. God will make good on his promises. Way back in the Exodus, the reason God delivered his people was because he had made promises. We read this in Exodus chapter 2. He delivered his people because, quote, God remembered his covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God freed his people because he promised the fathers he would free them. God is freeing us because he promised the father, prom- the, promised the fathers that the nations, that's us, would be blessed through his people. And he says, faithful to his holy covenant in verse 72. Luke won't use that word covenant again until Luke 22. When Jesus speaks of the new covenant and institutes communion, the Lord's Supper, to celebrate the new covenant. And the new covenant is the fulfillment of every other covenant. There are more covenants, but Abraham and David, those covenants seem to get the most emphasis, certainly here in Luke. And again, Abraham, the promises, the blessing of the nations. Through the family of Abraham, all peoples would be blessed. Then later on, David is one of the offspring of Abraham. And he raises up David and says, through you, there's going to be a kingdom that will never end. And so you have two different promises that come together in the Bible, even before Jesus. In fact, Psalm 72, 17 puts it this way. Psalm 72, another psalm about this coming king that's going to rule and deliver us, a messianic psalm. And it says this, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. It's an allusion to Genesis chapter 12. There is a coming king who will be in the line of David who will bring blessing to all nations. So the psalmist prophesies this coming king in the line of David who would bring blessing to the nations. The promises, the covenants of Abraham and David come together. And so the Old Testament ends with a question, when is this offspring coming? When is this offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, who is in the line of David, whose kingdom will never end? And through that family, all nations will be blessed. And that's why the first verse of the first book of the New Testament starts with the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. He's here. The silence is over. God has come to redeem his people just like he said he would. Look at verse 74. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Notice the goal of deliverance here that we might serve him. The idea here is worship, and not just worship on Sunday morning, worship in all of life. In fact, that same word for serve will be used in the next chapter to speak of Anna, the prophetess, who was worshiping in the temple night and day. We are saved to serve, that we might serve him. This is the goal of salvation. Yes, we are saved from sin and hell, but we are not only saved from something, we are saved for something, and that is to serve him all our days. Saved to serve the Lord. Another way of saying this is we're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Works matter. They are the goal of our salvation. That's Ephesians 2a, right? For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Not by works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, though, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
We are saved not by works, but we are saved for good works that God laid out beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is not just fire insurance. It's not our get out of hell free card we put in our back pocket and then just wait for the second coming. It's not pray a prayer, walk an aisle and be done. New Testament would be one page long if that were the case. No, we're saved to serve Christ. We're saved to serve Christ and serve his body in righteousness and holiness. It is God's will that believers grow progressively, increasingly from one degree of glory to another. Our conversion is just the beginning. It's not the end. Our baptism is not the finish line. It's the starting line. Save to serve. Salvation and service go together. If a person is not serving the Lord in any capacity, we have good reason to ask, are they truly saved? Salvation and service go together. Service is a fruit, not a root. It's a fruit of those who are truly saved. So I just want to ask, are you serving the Lord? It's the goal of your salvation. It's the goal of deliverance. Are you using your gifts? If you're a believer, you are gifted, and the church needs that gift. Are you using your gifts to serve and build up the church? We're saved to serve. Once again, we see this pattern in the Exodus. Everyone knows at least one verse from the Exodus. Let my people go. Sadly, we stop reading there. The rest of that verse says, that they might serve me. That's the goal of deliverance. It always has been. God saves us that we might serve him. And notice here, Zechariah says that we might serve him all our days. God's salvation and our response to that salvation is eternal. A few weeks ago, we sang a hymn called There is a Fountain. Uh, It's one of my favorite hymns. It will be sung at my funeral That's by a guy named William Cooper. William Cooper has a really fascinating life. He was plagued by discouragement and depression most of his life. Uh, He actually was a member of the church that John Newton pastored. John Newton's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And here's what he writes in this hymn. He says, For since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. So right from the beginning, from conversion, since he saw the the stream, Christ's flowing wounds, the blood of Christ, when he had faith that Jesus Christ saves. For since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die all our days. Then he says, and when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Then, in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. We should serve and worship him in response to what he's done for us all our days. And then we turn to the role. The role of this heaven-sent messenger in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He'll go before the Lord to prepare the way. And remember, this is in fulfillment of the prophets. God had promised through Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4 and Isaiah 40 that we read that God was going to come back. God was going to redeem and deliver and forgive his people. But before he did it, he had chosen to send a messenger. That messenger is John. We see that in Luke. We've already seen it. But flip over to Luke chapter 3 if you've got your Bible there. 
Luke chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is the fulfillment of the vision of Isaiah. Flip over a couple more pages to Luke chapter 7, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John was the capstone of the prophets, which is why he can say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he, because we get to experience what he only pointed forward to. John was the messenger. John is Elijah. He comes and he tills the soil of the hearts of God's people and then he raise, rolls out the red carpet for this coming royal son of David. He would preach and he would warn them. He would prepare the way and then he would get out of the way. His life is defined in relation to the Messiah. He is the one who goes before. It's what his life and mission was about. And brothers and sisters, all true and lasting joy and meaning comes when we define our life this way. When we, like John, define our lives around the Messiah, when he is our life, when we can say, as Philippians 1 says, to live is Christ, to die is gain, because it means more Christ. Give verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John goes before the Lord and he will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. This is the real need. Israel doesn't need political deliverance. They need the forgiveness of their sins, which is the reason they were in exile in the first place. They need knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins. And once again, this is in fulfillment of the prophets. This is new covenant language. The most famous new covenant passage is Jeremiah chapter 31. We say it every time we do the Lord's Supper. And in there we read that God would in the future, in the new covenant community, all would know knowledge of salvation, all would know the Lord. Everyone in the new covenant community would know the Lord in a personal way, unlike the old covenant. And then he says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more, no more going to the temple year after year after year being reminded that we don't match up. No, God forgives. That's the two blessings of the new covenant. 
knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Advent is about covenant keeping. Advent is about the coming of the long-awaited new covenant, the age of fulfillment. This is what this messenger will proclaim. That the one coming after me brings knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Friends, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, your greatest need is salvation. Your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And the good news of Christmas is Christ the Savior is born. You can have that Savior today. You can trust him. Turn from your sin. Trust in the Lord. If you've done that, let us know. You need to take the next step of obedience, which is believer's baptism. If you've got questions about that, let us know. We would love to talk more. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and sit in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. God is doing all this because of his tender mercy. He says the sunrise will visit. There's that word again. He will visit us from on high, just like he promised he would. And notice again here, all these prophecies in the Old Testament about God returning are fulfilled when Jesus comes. Jesus is God himself returning to his people. And he says the sunrise will visit his people. This is a reference to the Messiah. I love the King James translation here, the day spring will visit us from on high. John points to the one who gives light, the one who dispels the darkness of the world, the one who disperses the gloomy clouds. As we're going to sing here in a few moments, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel, and he has come. The day spring has visited us. That song, that prayer has been answered. So, brothers and sisters, no matter how dark the day, no matter how difficult the time, the rising sun has come. The dawn of God's salvation gives us hope for the future, and he says, peace in the present. He brings light and he guides our feet into the way of peace. This, again, is straight from the prophet Isaiah. We've already read it. Let me read it again. The people, Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The silence is over. God has spoken. 
God has returned. He is faithful. And he comes and he brings good news through this long-awaited messenger who will prepare the way for the Messiah. And like Mary, this messenger is a model disciple for us. You remember Mary's posture? I am your servant. Whatever the the word says, may it be so. Whatever you say, Lord, I am not my own. I am yours. My life is for you. I am here to please you. I want to magnify you. I want to exalt you with all that I am. Same with John. His whole life is defined around the Messiah. He prepares the way. He points the way. And then he gets out of the way. I love the way the apostle John speaks of John the Baptist in John chapter 1. He says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He was sent from God. Brother and sister, if you're a Christian, you are sent from God. John 17, as the Father sent me, I send you. We are a sent people. He was a witness. We're called to be witnesses. He bore witness about the light with the goal that all might believe. This is our mandate in the Great Commission. He wasn't the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. Brothers and sisters, as much as it may disappoint you, you are not the light. You are not the hero. This show is not about us. Jesus is the hero of history. Like John, we should point the way and get out of the way. As John would say in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, we must decrease. He must increase, we must decrease decrease. Lord, make it so among us.